from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, John chapter 8. We're going to finish up John chapter 8 this morning, and then we're going to take a break from John uh, until the uh, January 8th. We'll be back in John January 8th. So this morning, going to John chapter 8, verse 49, in just a moment, we've been, you know, in mystery novels, you kind of, it's just, the it's building. The tension is building, right? And and as the writer writes the mystery, they drop little hints here and there that kind of makes it a little more tense and a little more tense and you, and suspenseful. And, and you're waiting and you're you're waiting for that final moment when the writer puts all the clues together and and you have that kind of aha moment where you know how the mystery is solved. In John chapter 7 and, and 8, we've kind of been on that, that journey, right? Jesus enters the temple, and from the moment he comes in the temple, he keeps dropping these little hints and building suspense, right? We talked about how through um, the water ceremony, right? He fulfills the water ceremony. We talked about the light ceremony, how he fulfills the light ceremony. We, we, he, he makes the, 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 the statement, I am the light of the world. You will not walk in darkness. You'll have the light of men with you. Jesus keeps dropping these little sayings and the, the suspense is building, right? He's talking to the crowd and the crowd slowly fades away. And as the crowd fades away, the, the religious leaders come around him and start engaging him in conversation. And that just is another moment of tension. And, and, and the tension keeps rising and keeps rising until at the end of John chapter 8, in what is not a theological term, Jesus smacks them upside the head. <laughs> right? Because he gets to John chapter 8, and, and they're having this conversation, and at the very end, Jesus just says, I am. And the next thing you know, you read John uh, eight fifty nine, and they've got stones they're wanting to kill him, and you're going, all he said was, Two little words that we use repeatedly throughout the day. What in the world did Jesus just do? Well, this morning we're going to walk through these final verses and notice just the internal implications of the fact that Jesus looks at everybody around them and goes, Hey guys, I am. So let's see what God's Word says and what that means for us today. So in verse 48, remember, they're, they're, he's in the conversation with the Pharisees. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, we will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? And who, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. 
It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So this morning, as, as we walk our way through this passage, just I want us to kind of just two statements that are going to focus our study this morning. And the first is this. You see in the first truly, truly that Jesus promises eternal victory over death. Now, remember, and I keep saying this, we're coming in the middle of a conversation. We've broken this conversation up into three different studies. We're coming into the middle of the conversation. Jesus has, has been rebutting them and, and talking, saying, look, Abraham is not your father, or Satan is your father. And they finally get to the point where, th- where they look at him and they just go, you're a Samaritan and, and you have a demon. And you're going, okay. There's really nothing in that statement that you just make that makes any logical sense whatsoever. This, this is where they are. They cannot argue with Jesus. They cannot win the argument. And so they get to the point where they're just like, you know what? We're just going to insult you. We're, I mean, and they know it's a lie. They know he's not from Samaria, uh, uh, Samaria because we've already discussed that. They've already admitted to that. So they're just going to insult him, like, look, you're just, the best we can, I think he's doing is that you're, you're just a Samaritan. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to worship. You're just as inauthentic in worship and confused as they are. You're just a Samaritan. And by the way, you've got a demon as well. Now, there is no historical correlation between why they would link being from Samaria with a demon. It's just to the point where they're just, they're just insulting him. All right, this is, you know, you know, you've gotten to that point in an argument with somebody, right? You ever been so mad and you get to the end of the argument and you're just like, well, fine. And you make some comment. And the one that popped into my mind was like, well, yeah, you're ugly and your mom dresses you funny. And, and, and you know, right then you've lost the argument. You, you, you don't have any comeback other than a personal attack. And, and this is what they're doing. Now think about it. All right, and you know me, I like to find humor in the Scripture. And I think there's a lot more there. John chapter 9 could be a comedy when we get to John chapter 9. That's just funny. Can you imagine these dignified men? These are the religious leaders. These are the learned men of the day. And all of what that learning looks like. All right, so let's take, y- y'all have seen college graduations and you've seen all the professors march in in, in, their, in their PhD robes, right? And it's got the colored bars and they got the sashes and they got the little flat hats, not the square ones, but the little flat ones. And, and you know, to let everybody know we're the smart ones, okay? Maybe one day you'll be as smart as us, but we're the smart ones today. Can you imagine if you're surrounded, you're in a conversation with these learned men, and you're having deep conversations with them, and they just look at them and go, you're just, you don't know what, you're, you're just stupid. You look funny in that robe that you're wearing. 
Right? That's, this is what's happening. The learning men, the smart men, the men of the Scriptures are looking at Jesus, and the best they got is, you're just a Samaritan, and you must have a demon as well. They can't hear him. They can't understand what he is saying. And, and instead of driving them to understand and driving them back to search the Scriptures that they know, they just decide, we're going to make fun of you. And then when Jesus speaks, notice, he doesn't even say anything about the Samaritan comment. He, he doesn't even respond to that. And as far as the demon goes, he goes, I don't have a demon. <laughs> I mean, how, how anticlimactic is that? You would expect Jesus, you know, some deep theological trick. You got a demon. I, I don't have a demon. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not. But what he does is he immediately turns it right back around them and goes, look. I'm honoring the Father, and you dishonor me. Now, we, we're not an honor country or an honor culture like other cultures in the world are. And right here, ancient Near East, honor was so very important. You didn't dishonor yourself in public. You didn't dishonor other people in public. And by their behavior and their actions, and their personal attacks on Jesus, they have dishonored themselves, and everybody in the temple would have witnessed that. Everybody who was there that day saw that, and so when Jesus says, you dishonor me, the whole crowd would have automatically just been on Jesus' side just from a cultural issue. Well, and yeah, that really was dishonoring. You might not agree with him, but man, y'all went, went a little too far with the whole demon comment. Jesus says, I honor the Father. You seek to honor the Father, but you're dishonoring by your behavior. Instead, I am honoring him. And as I honor him, I'm not seeking to honor myself. All right, he says, verse 30, excuse me, verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus says, I'm not, I've not come here to honor myself. Now, we, we know a little bit about that, don't we? we? We like to honor ourselves. The world tells us to honor ourselves, you know, kind of walk around with the idea uh, everywhere we go. It's just like, hey, world, check, check me out. I've got it going on. I've got it all clear. You, you, you know, look at me. Look at what I did. Let me honor myself. Here, here's what I did last week, and here's what I did the week before, and here's what I did for the company. And, and I think, hey, why don't y'all join me as, as I honor myself? Y'all honor me too. Jesus says, I, I, I've not seek to glorify myself. I've not been here to honor myself. And if you look through the first eight chapters of John, you see that. Jesus doesn't, right? Jesus, again, doesn't just walk into the temple, walk right up to the Holy of Holies, rip down the curtain, sit on the Ark of the Covenant, and be like, hey, I'm here, guys. Come on. He says, I'm not seeking my own glory. He says, but I am going to be glorified. And he says, the Father who you think that you know, who you really don't know, by the way, He's going to glorify me. And it says, you know, God, in fact, is going to seek out those who will give Him glory. 
And then God will judge those people based on whether they ascribe the glory that is rightfully His. And so a failure then to recognize God's glory has eternal consequences because Jesus says the Father is is going to, to glorify me. And in the Gospel of John, what we know is that the ultimate glorification of Jesus Christ is on the cross. And so Jesus is saying, he again, pointing to the cross. The Father is going to glorify me on the cross. And if you recognize that, you recognize that God is glorifying me that way and that through my obedience by going to the cross, that is going to bring you salvation, then you will be saved. Because the ultimate mission of of Jesus is what? To come and, and bring salvation. But if you fail to recognize that God is going to glorify Jesus through that, you're now in opposition to God and what He is doing. And if you're in opposition to God, you're in opposition to His message of salvation. And if you're in opposition to this message of salvation, then you stand in a very precarious spot because you're not receiving or wanting to be a recipient of the eternal victory over death that Jesus is going to provide. Which is what he says. Right? I mean, this is the logic because he gets to the truly, truly statement in verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Several years ago, I was in a hospital and I I was visiting and the doctor, she she came in and the, the person I was there with was was very close to death and the doctor knew that I was struggling with with that and the doctor she she just she looked at me we 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 were talking we were just having a conversation and I think she was trying to help me I mean I even had my pastor badge on but she was trying to help me and I appreciate that and she made this comment she just goes you know it's all right death is normal and it just hit me wrong. I mean, not, not in a mad way, but it just hit me wrong. So I stopped there, and I, just, I started to think for just a few minutes before I responded. And, and I looked at her, and, and I said, there is nothing normal about death. Now, I understand, and you know that if we want to define it as normal as it happens to everyone on this earth, fine, I will, I will, I will grant you that. But when someone dies, nothing about it feels normal. I think we can all speak to that from experience. Nothing nothing feels normal. It feels like, what does it feel like? It feels like this should not be happening. And the amazing truth about that is it feels like that whether it is unexpected or someone who has lived a very long and happy life. It still feels like this should not happen be happening. And we can go to Ecclesiastes and figure out why, because God placed in us eternity in our hearts. We we look at death and, and, and just go, no. 
It's, it's a little bit of, of the, crea- the creation and all its purity in Genesis 1-2 that, that still remains, that in death we go, this is not right. Because in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there was no death. There was no sin. And so the world, in an attempt to understand this, just goes, well, death is, is normal. Really? If it is so normal, why do you spend so much money on drugs, exercise, beauty products, diets, fill in the blank to escape death? If it's normal, why does the world then orient their life trying to avoid it? I got an answer for that. It ain't normal. It's just really that simple. And it's not normal for us now. It wasn't normal for them for, for them. So Jesus looks at him and says, Look, if you believe in me, if you keep my word, okay, if you keep my word, you will never see death. And in that moment, Jesus does that thing that Jesus does again. Everybody else is talking about the earthly, and Jesus immediately goes to the spiritual. And you see that they're still focused on the earthly because they make their appeal once again to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people and the nation, right? If they were going to make any appeals, it's going to be an appeal to, to Abraham and or Moses. It was it, when the, in the Jewish hierarchy, it was Abraham, Moses, and then a very, very distant third, everybody else. So they go, look, Abraham died, right? We know you have a demon because Abraham is dead. Moses died. The prophets died. Everybody has died. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And then the, the question, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Now, we know the answer, right? We've been reading John, and so we're all sitting here going, he is, <laughs> right? We, we, we know the answer. So they're, they're looking at Jesus and going, Jesus, everybody dies. Abraham, the greatest, who, who through God working through him, established the nation of Israel, died. Moses, who God gave the law to, died. All the prophets who came after died. The kings, David, as great as he was, died. Solomon, as great as he was, died. Everyone is dead. And here you are, a person, a, a mere human, who is going to die because you are human. Now, let's... let's they're not thinking cross, but they're just looking at Jesus going, you're going to die just like they did. So how then, Jesus, if you can't defeat death because you're going to die, can you say that anyone who believes in you will never die? How will they not taste death? And I like the literal translation. The literal translation is, is more to the effect of, you will not see death unto the ages. I, I, don't, I just like that better because it sounds more poetic. In the ages to come, you will not die. How? Well, we know that. We, we know what is happening. We know that Jesus is not talking about physical death. Because barring Jesus returning first, we will die. Again, no one likes to think about it. It's not a happy thought. It's just a true thought. One day we will take our last breath here. What we need to understand, though, is to have a proper view of death. Death in its most basic form as a, for a believer, or actually even for non-believers, death in its most basic form 
is separation. Where, where the body is, is, is separated from the soul. And you know this because when you go to visitation, the body is there, but the soul is not. There, there, there has been a, a separation, but that's not the worst separation. That's what Jesus is saying. There's something worse. The separation that is worse is the separation between us and God because of our sins. Which is one that, that we can't rec reconcile, one that they can't reconcile. And since we can't reconcile that, it has eternal, conse eternal consequences. We need someone to facilitate our reconciliation. We need a mediator. We need a go-between. Jesus is saying... He's going to do that. He's going to be the mediator who reconciles us back to God. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. So Jesus says, if you believe in my word, if you abide in my word, if you cling to my word, if you obey it, if you live by it, then that separation that exists between you and God, is removed. Now, it has glorious benefits because the separation is removed here, now on this earth while we live. We have already been reconciled to God through Christ. At the same time, when a believer dies, our reconciliation is confirmed by presence. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent the body is what? To be present with the Lord. That separation is gone. I know that many of you, if not, uh, if not all of you, have been to a funeral that I have conducted. And in my closing prayer, either in here before we move to the graveside or if it's just a graveside, at the graveside, the closing prayer, I always pray this. Give us the faith to see in death the gate to eternal life. Because as much as death for those who are left behind is horrible, right? It, it, it's, we, we don't, it's hard, right? Being, being left behind, it's hard. For those who die in Christ, it's not. And we need to understand this because we need to make sure our thinking is correct and we need to understand that in that moment, they do not leave this life to a cold nothingness. It's what the world says. That's why death for them is, is to be feared and to escape at all costs because it's, it's nothing after death. But for a believer, that's not what it is. For a believer, they are welcomed by Jesus Christ into instant glory and joy. So death for a believer then is movement from life to life. And because that is true, the fear of death has been removed. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you keep my word, you will never taste death. Jesus is saying, look, I promise you eternal victory over death. Because we will. We will live forever with him. But again, they missed the point. 
because they're still fascinated and they're trying to figure out, well, how is this going to be true? So Jesus continues to teach them. He says, look, I'm going to teach you that I secure the eternal victory. So that's our second point this morning, that Jesus secures our eternal victory over death. They still don't believe him. So all they do, again, they ask, right? Again, picture it. All uh, the, These are the Jewish leaders. They're in the robes. They've got the, the phylacteries. They, they, they've done everything to present to the world and to God, look at how religious I am. And they, they're talking to Jesus and, no, you're a Samaritan. No, you've got a demon. And then finally, just exasperated, who do you think you are? <laughs> Who are you? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Surely not. I mean, they just, they, they can't hear it. They can't see, hear what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus says that again, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Again, he goes back to the father. He goes, you keep appealing to the father. You don't know the father. But he's going to glorify me. And when I am glorified, again, remember, in John, the glorification is the cross. When I am glorified, then what I told you that if you keep my word, you will never see death is sealed and secured. They just, they, they don't believe. They don't believe. And so Jesus, as he's talking to them, just is, is going to draw them in. Okay? Again, I know Jesus doesn't smack people, but he's going to draw them in to smack them upside the head. So verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So now Jesus, this is the first time Jesus actually appeals to Abraham, right? He keeps talking about Abraham, but if you notice in the conversations, they, the, the Pharisees keep appealing to Abraham, and God keeps making his appeal to the Father. So he finally, Jesus says, all right, fine, we'll appeal to Abraham. I'll, I will join you on this. And he says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So now the Jews are, are just still so confused. You're not even, you're, you're, you're not even 50 which would have been a, a good old age. You're not even 50. And have you seen Abraham? Have you seen Abraham? What is going on? Well, if we're not careful, we read that first verse in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and glad. We don't maybe make those same statements, but we make similar statements especially when we're talking to younger generations about previous generations, right? We all have a, a, a we've said, man, your grandparent or your great-grandparent or so-and-so would have really enjoyed seeing your day, right? I, I, I make this several times with, with about my grandfather and Luke. My grandfather and Luke would have gotten into so much trouble together. I mean, they would have. If you knew my grandfather and y'all know, I mean, he could have gotten Luke to do anything, <laughs> And they would have had a good time. So we kind of understand that, you know, they, they would have enjoyed seeing your day. But Jesus then goes one step farther and he says, and he saw it. Okay, wait a minute. My grandfather didn't see Luke's day. 
So the Pharisees look at him and go, uh, um, how? How? You're, you're, you're not even 50 years old. How, how, did, how, how did Abraham... What are you doing? What are you saying? Now we gotta kind of we gotta kind of step back and understand just just a little bit. Y'all know that God made an eternal, unbreakable covenant with Abraham, and part of that covenant that was that through Abraham all the families on the earth will be blessed. And so we can go back to Genesis and we can see that Abraham didn't see the fulfillment of that promise. Abraham doesn't make it out of Genesis. Right? But how are all the families blessed? So here in the, in the temple, you know, the Pharisees might would argue that the nation of Israel has been blessed, but the world not so much. Jesus, how, how is Abraham seeing what's going on? What, what's happening? And, and in their talking, did you catch the subtle difference? Did you catch the difference in the two verses? And it, it has to do with the person who was seen. Verse 56, Abraham sees, right? He saw it and was glad. Verse 57, the Jews say, you have seen Abraham. Just, just a, a subtle difference. What Jesus, Abraham sees. What the Pharisees, Jesus sees. Why did they switch perspective? Well, Part of it was they believed that God showed Abraham the Messianic age. So that doesn't surprise them or cause any alarm. But look at what Jesus says. Again, we've got to be very careful and, and pay attention to the words. He saw it. What? He saw what? He saw the Messianic age. But what did Jesus say the Messianic age was? Jesus says, my day, that he would see my day. So right there, Jesus equates Abraham seeing the Messianic age. The Messianic age is Jesus in his day. So Abraham would rejoice then, Jesus says, to see me here in the temple. Because I am the full and ultimate fulfillment of all the world, all the families of the world being blessed through me. Go to Matthew 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is saying, look, Abraham would rejoice and did rejoice seeing my day. What you won't fulfilled through the Abrahamic promise and through the Messianic age, is fulfilled in me. The Messiah coming into the world, not to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. This is the day that Abraham looked forward to and he rejoiced knowing that it was going to come. And I stand now in front of you in the temple telling you I am that fulfillment. Your father Abraham is rejoicing. Why are you not rejoicing? Why are you not embracing me? Abraham did. Why are you not celebrating all the Scripture pointing to my day? 
And as the learned men of Judaism going, yes, he is the Messiah. He is the one that we have been waiting to come. Why are you not celebrating and rejoicing like your father Abraham would and did? And the answer is they are so blinded they can't see. They are so determined in in their knowledge and in their wisdom, and it can't be like this that they can't see. So they just, again, they go back to, we can't argue with you. And notice again how it has progressed. They've stopped arguing any type of theology. This isn't Jesus, you know, I know what the prophet Isaiah said. I've read it. I know John 7, I know about the virgin, I I know about that passage. Help me understand that passage, walk me through the passage. It's not that, there's there's no type of argument there, it's just you're a Samaritan, you've got a demon, you're an idiot, you're crazy, you can't be, you're not this old. They cannot engage with him on a theological level. And so again they go, Abraham's been dead for 2,000 years, you're only 50, you're not even 50, there's no way. Now we know that you're a lunatic. Now we know that you are crazy. How is it even possible? Now they didn't want an answer. But Jesus looks at him and once again says, truly, truly, and here it is. Before Abraham was, I am. And you go, what did he just say that in verse 59 they're trying to kill him? Why not earlier when he appealed to the Father? Why not beforehand when he came in the temple and was creating the ruckus? Why now? What did he do when he just looked down and said, before Abraham was, I am? Well, what he just did, everybody who was there in the temple that day knew Because they all remember Exodus chapter 3. They remember Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is on the backside of the wilderness and he's tending his sheep and he looks and he sees a bush that is on fire but it's not not consumed. And if that wasn't weird enough, the bush that's on fire that's not consumed starts to talk to him. And the bush says to him, look, Moses, you're going to go to Egypt and I will free my people and, and lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And I will use you, Moses to bring my people out. And Moses goes, okay, God. But when I go back there, because I haven't been there for 40 years, when I walk back into Egypt and go, hey, I'm here. Let's go. And I say to you, the God of your of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob spoke to me, and he said, it's time to go, so let's go. The first question they're going to ask is, who sent you? So God, when they asked me, Who sent me? I can't tell them that there was a bush that was on fire but not consumed and started talking, God, because that's going to sound a little weird. So how do I answer them? God speaks to Moses, and he says to them, Moses, tell them, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Go back to John 8. 
And when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. What Jesus just did is different than the other I am's that we've been reading. I am the bread of life. There's like a little faint echo there, but that, that's about it. You look in John 8.24 and 8.28, he says, unless you believe that I am he, and then again in 8.28, you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. The echo is a little bit louder, but it's not quite what it is in 58 when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Because in that moment, in that sentence, Jesus is making an absolute claim. And the absolute claim is this. I am. People today will say, well, you know, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, I am God. Like, really? I'll give you the sentence. Jesus does not stand before anybody and say, I am God. But in John 8, 58, Jesus says, I am. And everybody in the temple knew exactly what he just said. He just made an absolute claim to pre-existence. He just made an absolute claim to deity. He just made an absolute claim to sovereignty. He just made an absolute claim to authority over the temple. He just made an absolute claim to be the Messiah. He just made an absolute claim to be the I Am of Exodus chapter 3. So that when Jesus says, you desire to see the messianic age, you desire to see the glory of God revealed in the temple again, stop searching. I am stands before you. You don't need to look any farther. So when we go through John chapter two, from John chapter 1 and 2 and all the way up to 8, and we see that Jesus replaces and fulfills the purification laws, the temple, the Sabbath, Bethel, manna, the water ceremony, the lighting ceremony. When we go back and we read all the I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the water, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When, when we, we read all of those statements, when we read in John 8, unless you, you believe, you will die in your sins. When we read all of these statements and we go, how in the world can that be true? How can all of that happen? How can we have the security in that? It comes down to what Jesus says in John eight fifty eight. I am. Everything can be fulfilled through me because I am Yahweh. I am the pre-existent, eternal, sovereign God come down from heaven. Because you can't do what needs to be done. You can't work enough, be good enough, pray enough, Worship enough. You can't do what needs to be done. You can't fulfill the law so that the separation between you and God can be reconciled. But when the fullness of time had arrived, I am stepped forward and stepped onto this earth so that through Him, because He is God in the flesh, He can fulfill all of that 
so that as we believe in Him, we will not taste death even unto the ages. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.